You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, everyone. Today we have outdoor writer and political journalist Gabriella Hoffman, who you've heard on the show. She's the host of District of Conservation, and she hosts a new digital series called Conservation Nation. I'll link to all of her social media as well as her last episode in the show notes. Other than that, sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, Gabriella, I'm excited to have you here because uh, th- this has been on my mind recently. I'm starting a job in Wisconsin, and it's in the policy arena. And what was funny for them when I showed up is that uh, a few of them mentioned, hey, a lot of people get into this type of work at the state level because they want to go to D.C. And that's like their end-all, be-all goal. And it's like you're doing the opposite. You're already there. You've been there, and now you're leaving. And, and I think that's really funny when they put it that way because your career is kind of like that you, you you started doing a lot of you know political commentary and things especially when you came from california over to dc but now you, while you still have a foot in that field pretty firmly you, you've you've taken this other course which is al- almost like an inverse course it's like people get into different fields who eventually get into politics because that's where they think all the money and the fame is but you went from that and you were like you know what outdoor outdoors writing is something i actually want to do and you've been able to accomplish so much. You became an award-winning writer. You started doing uh, digital series online. It's it's a career path that a lot of people would probably look at, you know, as a step down. But you've been able to make it an elevating point for yourself personally and professionally. Let let's just get into all of that. When did that transition moment start for you? I would say it first began. Gosh, I would say concretely in 2015, 2016, I had landed an opportunity to do some freelance outdoor writing, actually, some of my first foray into paid writing with a website called Wide Open Spaces. And I've always been a proponent of spending time outdoors. I love fishing, grew up doing it. Everyone thinks I'm just new to everything outdoors. I'm like, no, guys, just hunting. That's new for me. But fishing I've been doing since I was little. You can wear heels and boots. (laughs) Yes, not simultaneously, but, <laughs> but when, when necessary, I'll wear them for each respective occasion. But I hate wearing heels, actually. Like, they cause your feet a lot of problems. It's actually not really good to wear them too often. But on occasion when I do, they're okay and for very limited matters. But I like wearing flip-flops or boots more comfortably. And I always had seen 
you know, an interest in doing this. I've heard about outdoor writing, outdoor journalism a little bit. I was familiar with like field and stream and outdoor life and anyone who is somewhat well-read or knows about things like those are the two publications and a handful of others you want to get your work printed in. I never really thought, okay, down the road, maybe I'll get printed. Maybe not. Who knows? And I first started with this wide open spaces, which is kind of not as relevant as it used to be at the height of digital media. I know when Facebook started to play with the algorithm in terms of making a profit on the publicator on the outlet, I should say mm-hmm. um, it, it went down, you know, this having seen Facebook kind of whether they do demonetization, they make you do pay to play. It's a, it's a slow chokehold because mm-hmm. you know, for, and, and it's really weird because I, I'm in I'm in kind of two camps myself. I'm in the policy political world, and then I made the weird jump into like comic books and pop culture. And the difference in how things live online is weird because mm-hmm. I could I could share a link to not even my pieces, but pieces from general outlets, Politico, The Hill, uh, The Washington Examiner, stuff like that, and it will get about the the reaction you want given the platform facebook twitter whatever you do that with anything else that's definitely like non-controversial and it it's it's like a wildfire mm-hmm. and you look at it and you think well you know is it the content or is it what what the platforms want and it it, it became more apparent now than ever before that yeah this is this has been something that has been in the process for a while and now with mark zuckerberg basically saying that all political content on Facebook specifically is going to be downgraded in terms of reach and engagement. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, that should be telling to a lot of people. It is. And I think a lot of publications really came into the fold with the rise of Facebook and just kind of the frontier aspect of it. I know some people who made millions in the conservative space and they don't do much of it anymore but they made millions from running like young conservative blogs and things of that sort and were able to monetize that and just take their talents elsewhere. And now you can't really do it. And same with this publication. I think a lot of their reach has been shot down. So you don't see much and maybe they still have some relevance, but um, at the height of this publications, I would say prominence, I was able to have maybe like seven or eight months of writing there. And I had always kind of casually talked about the outdoors a little bit in politics and I think this phenomenon where you can put your feet into many different pools, I like to call it crossover, like having communication crossover across different things. Cause you're not entirely abandoning politics. I haven't abandoned politics fully, but I'm not in it a hundred percent, which I think is much healthier for my well being, And also just to stay in touch with people and like with the outdoors, great outdoors, this activity, these activities, I should add, they are actually quite a better industry. I mean, you have your quirks with it. You have all the different controversies sometimes, and sometimes you have drama and whatnot, but because it is more private sector based, you are judged on your talents. You judged on your products that you bring. And also it's so tied to and enmeshed with kind of government in a sense, because when you're spending money on guns and ammunition, all those excise taxes that come in largely go to funding restoration of habitat, wildlife conservation, and even hunters education courses. So over the years, I've learned about kind of the mechanisms in place, kind of the behind the scenes look into things, how the firearm industry operates. And I mean, we always hear this about the outdoors, that hunters are craven and evil, they're bloodlusters. 
the outdoor industry itself is only, you know, for some people, like for hikers and bikers, they kind of want to leave those activities exclusive with the preservationist ideals. When it comes to firearms, they never get a fair shake and the industry folks behind it are always painted in a really negative light. So I saw these different like emerging pieces coming together. I was generally interested. I started to have a platform and I was able to grow my Twitter in coincidence with kind of just the proliferation of the platform and also Facebook and somewhat of Instagram. And uh, so I came to a realization that I was in a unique position to cover these subjects because I was somewhat embedded in them myself. I was already fishing. I was meeting people in politics who like firearms, who like hunting. And I saw kind of an opening, especially for young women to cover these subjects because it is kind of a male dominated industry, kind of like in politics, but the trends were starting to point to more women participating. And there was, they always had said like, we want more female voices to cover these subjects, to give kind of an interesting look into this. And this doesn't take away from male participants whatsoever, but I think in marketing, you know, this in order to appeal to people and for ads to really sell or marketing to really take off. And I've learned this even in my own consulting business too, which is my primary way of staying afloat. (laughs) Writing is kind of an aside, but it's, it's a good way to, kind of level my activities and to stay focused together. Yeah. Keep everything together. It keeps my brain fresh, but in outdoor advertising, a long problem, a longstanding problem in our industry and in hunting, fishing, shooting sports is too many people never really saw themselves in the sport. Advertising never featured women. Sometimes it would kind of feature your standard, like grandpa, grandson, kind of pasty white picture. And for a long time, the industry was like that because we weren't as diverse of a country, et cetera, et cetera. So naturally people have started to, and also I like to cover the trends too, about purchasing power, different demographics going into this and why they go into this, these activities. And thankfully it's been one of the few industries not co-opted by woke politics, which I'm so grateful for. Um, because you can naturally pride diversity without making it very political. Um, which is one thing I wish other industries would learn how to do, but they don't. And so more advertising across the year started to feature women. No, I I mean, I feel like that's, it's it's interesting you bring that up because like for me, I was never much of an outdoors guy until like recently with, with COVID and everything, I was kind of forced to really look around and be like, well, all my favorite things are closed down. When, when the movie theaters basically mm-hmm. died, I was like, well, there goes most of my hobbies. So, Aww. you know, I, I started traveling. And, I mean, with that, I've seen a lot of people who have never traveled before and never tried to take advantage of, like, BLM land or state parks or campgrounds. Now they're starting to really understand that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to really help me, I've, I've listened to a ton of podcasts. I've listened to Wild Ideas Worth Living. I'm just going through my list. Uh, Jumping with Traveling Jackie, The Great Outdoors. Atlas Obscura. I mean, there, there are a ton out there. And right now it seems like this might be this, this weird opportunity for a lot of people to find the outdoors. It's not just a hobby for like real hardcore hunters and fishermen and people who like to do like extreme challenges, but just as something that could be a regular part of their life, Mm -hmm. especially for women. A lot of the articles and stuff I've been seeing it, it seems like a lot of them are just discovering it for the first time. I think a lot of men discovered it for the first yeah. time, but as a guy, I'm looking around and it's like, it's almost like women are just now being introduced to this idea. I say that with air quotes. 
Yeah, I think even... I don't know why it was always kind of shown that only white people would go to the outdoors because if you look in the country's history, black Americans used to go hunting in big numbers. They used to be self-sustaining and and they are today, of course, but the culture, I mean, they would live off the land. They would go hunting and fishing. And for some reason that disconnect happened in the 20th century and same with like Hispanic culture. They love to go fishing. I would say probably some of the largest participants of fishing are Hispanic Americans. That's one of the biggest demographics that you see go fishing um, all the time in California. I saw this even here. I see it too. Like amazing natural gravitation towards fishing among Hispanic Americans too. Asian Americans too love to go fishing as well. So you've always had people naturally attracted to these sports, maybe marketing and all these different campaigns are starting to catch up and reflect that a little better and tell those stories a bit more. And yeah, in terms of nature, I feel like it's a lot of city dwelling people too, because they've been so far removed. They lived in like New York city, they lived in Los Angeles and they didn't really go outdoors anywhere, especially nearby them, whether it was a national park or BLM land, or uh, let's say even like a national monument or even a state park. I think a lot of people really would just stick to their enclaves. They would just go to places that were safe for them in terms of like, let me go to Annapolis or let me go to Richmond or let me go to all these different like cities and towns. And they would never really, that was their idea of going outdoors. It would just be to some like kind of exotic place, a few hours away from their city of living. And they would do the beer floats or they would do like wine tasting. And that was like their little slither of outdoor opportunities but because that was one of the few activities the government didn't prevent you from doing, although now, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, this new administration, so much without going into the weeds of politics, they want to make sure you have reservations ahead of time, ahead of day visits to national parks, which I think is ludicrous. Um, they- um, I was at, I was at a Medoc or Medoc state. Uh, state park in North Carolina. It's like along the North Carolina Virginia border. I, I didn't plan on going there. It was it was a it was kind of a fluke. I was supposed to go elsewhere, but that opportunity didn't turn out. So the guy was like, "Well, have you been to this park?" And I was like, "No." And what was funny was um, there were. I, I've never been to a state or national park where you have a lot of park rangers, but there were like a lot of park rangers there, and there was a good number of people for a weekday. I think I went there on like a Thursday, and you know. They they were really trying to push the whole social distancing thing. Mm-hmm. My thing is like on a trail, like for me, my 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 activity is I'm an avid hiker. I love mm-hmm. hiking. Um, there's only so much you can do when you're on a certain trail. Because if yep. you're if you're along the side of a hill or a mountain or something, you can't just push the other person off. Or depending no. on the size of the person, how much they're doing, you can't always just shimmy past each other. And then, you know, if you're on the, the trails like I, I went they had like a dozen trails there. I went on one. Um, it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're on this very narrow trail where if you step off into the bush, like you're stepping straight into poison ivy, it's like a mile (laughs) of poison ivy. So it's one of those situations where it's like over the past year, people started to take advantage of it. And now because people are starting to see an uptick in activity, what do they want to do? They want to basically just say, we're just going to go ahead and monitor the whole experience, which is like, if you're going out there. You, you should take a degree of responsibility with you. It should of be course. one of those things where they're like, listen, if you're here, we're going to let you do your thing. I, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but just there. It's like if this small state park is kind of encountering this, I can only imagine how it is elsewhere because it felt it, it felt a little bit too overbearing. So my time there, while I did enjoy getting to see something new, uh, I, I basically cut my time on the trail short because I was like, these these people are bugging the hell out of me. 
Yeah, there was a campaign to recreate responsibly, which was pushed last year. It's still being pushed this year. And certainly overcrowdedness is going to happen. I see it on the Mount Vernon Trail sometimes. But what you can do is like make space for people wherever conditions permit you to make space, of course. And I don't know if like having a pre-reservation on national parks is effective, but I think if it's used to limit attendance just to those who are so-called the right type of participants, I think that's problematic because it could be used by people to say, well, we don't want regular people going to national parks because they may not be cultured enough. They may not know. Um, And obviously that's not the same as discouraging people from littering. I think sometimes you do see when you go to certain places, like when that really mysterious obelisk was placed all over the country (laughs) in Utah, the the alien contact. Yes. So (laughs) when it was installed in Utah on BLM land, there were some complaints of course. And I think rightfully so of people who went there and they just disturbed the area. It wasn't really a well-traversed area of public lands. And they were just, obviously people complained rightfully so because it was just not equipped to handle so many visitors. That portion, it was remote, uh, not really accessible to to many people. You certainly can't have like thousands of people there because it would just kind of overwhelm things. But um, foot traffic can be overwhelming. That's certainly a challenge for people to have. But I think... There's so much space in this country. I mean, it's kind of like the argument saying, like, can we accommodate more people into this country? This country is so big enough, like you can have, I don't know how many acres per person. So we don't have a land problem. We have plenty of space in this country, but everyone is just so concentrated in the cities. They think there's nothing else beyond them. But I think there's enough space on national park land, even on BLM land for people to go. If they obviously take the right measures, they're not overcrowded. Um, I don't know what, if they can put like capacity limits for guests to visit different parks. How would they even enforce that? It's difficult to do that because the mantra of public lands is public lands are open for everyone. It's not owned by anyone. It's owned by all of us. And and when you hear people say, well, we're going to restrict access. So they're like, this goes against the the premise of what public lands are. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are going to pay access fees that goes to helping like with infrastructure at different parks, like restoring, you know, old buildings, repairing the roads. You, they need those monies to come in. I mean, we have had some remedies in the Great American Outdoors Act, of course, and some other things, but like, how could you say no to more people spending money at parks, especially yeah, like, national parks? Like I, the last, uh, the last time I had to pay to go into a park was a uh, Skyline Drive in the Shenandoah. Yeah, Shenandoah. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's thirty dollars, but you get access for about a week. Even though week? it's like you're not going to go back there and just drive constantly. I, I did it for like a couple hours. And I was like, okay, thirty dollars for that, I'm out. But it's mm-hmm. like you know that makes sense. It's a driving mm-hmm. route. Like you're not gonna do a lot more other than that. They have campgrounds and stuff, but it's and primarily hiking trails. There. yeah, but it's primarily there for people to drive. Mm-hmm. That's a majority of the people that show up. That makes sense for a lot of these other parks. It's it's like one of those things where it's like this should be like the great equalizer because mm-hmm. w- with me, like I did my trip around Virginia and then I went to Indiana in January and recently I just did my trip around North Carolina and like part of my travel mindset has been. I want to go to as many free places as possible, and I need to be able to travel, live, eat, sleep as inexpensively as possible. So with these state parks and a lot of these other things, that was just the obvious thing because it's like that's all there really is. They start doing that, 
you know, it, it's going to become one of those things where it's like, well, can only certain type of people go in? And it's kind of self-defeating because only mm-hmm. the government would complain about having more demand for something. <laughs> Other people would be like Disneyland. They just go ahead and create more swamp land in Florida. I don't know how they do it. They just find a way. It's like with, with a lot of these places now, it's like this is a good problem. If you want to educate people on why they should you know, be preserve protecting this. these lands, preserving it, taking good care of it, being good stewards of it, this is the best opportunity ever because Amen. you've got nothing else to do. Amen. And this is a good time. I think so many people had had no realization about what is available in their backyard. I even have talked to friends on the East Coast here who've said they've never been to Yellowstone. They've never been to Yosemite. They've never been to these iconic national parks. And I'm like, maybe I was rare in having these really cool opportunities or obviously the distance between the East Coast and Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, kind of that greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and even to California, it creates some space and kind of a disconnect to people. Although you have Great Smoky Mountain National Park, you have Acadia National Park in Maine, which is phenomenal from what people have told me. You have different places. There's even one in South Carolina that no one knows about or goes to. What's yeah, that? yeah, there is there is a one of the 63 is in South Carolina, if I'm huh. not mistaken, too. Yeah, in North Carolina and Tennessee, they share Great Smoky Mountain. Um, where else? Obviously Shenandoah here in Virginia, um, Florida has Everglades. And then I think one or two more, uh, in addition to that. So East coast has some, but they're a little harder to get to sometimes, but, um, there are also like adjacent national park service lands, like the national mall is actually an NPS designated land, but it's not a national park itself. It's just within the system. Uh, there are just only 63 of those parks officially. And actually they just opened one or they designated one, through, I think it was the, one of the relief bills in West Virginia, New River Gorge is now a national park and preserve. So you can go hunting on that one. It's unusual because most national parks don't allow you to go hunting. Yeah. I was about to say they usually disincentivize that. Yes. Yeah. Because as the designation goes, it's a lot harder to do certain activities. So hunting is largely discontinued and disallowed on those. And Um, to get a permit, like you need a permit to do that, right? If you're going to go there. Uh, it depends. So like fishing, do you, I don't know if you know this, but in Shenandoah, you can technically go fishing. Uh, there's some different streams there and you, d- you don't need a separate national park license unless you're, so if you go to a national forest, which is different, you need a, like a separate license for that. I actually just renewed it. I went to fish in, um, the Washington and Jefferson forest. So it's only like four bucks a year, but there's actually no national park license for fishing. As long as you have your trout and freshwater licenses, and you catch and release. I don't think you can take any fish from the national park, but it's mostly catch and release if you are permitted to fish in the national parks, but you have to check on the national park website, but some places do allow fishing, but for the most part, there's no hunting allowed except for maybe some coaling efforts. Like in grand Canyon, they allow like maybe once a year or so like park rangers and maybe some hunters who win a lottery to help cull the bison numbers. And then in Grand Teton, I think there is a similar lottery hunt that you can apply to to hunt some elk. But those are really rare and they're very high, highly regulated with, and you do most of your hunting outside of the yeah, parks. Yeah, with, with, uh, with, with the Grand Canyon, I'm from Arizona originally. I don't know what the hell is going on because they have really began to limit the really? number of people that gone out there. They say it's because it's become too dangerous. Like the number what? of people, the number of people who have died doing basic things at the Grand Canyon. I think the Grand Canyon has like the highest death toll. Is it because of, they take selfies off the cliff? Believe it or not, that's one of the reasons. Oh my gosh. 
they, they, See, they also, put up barriers from what I understand. Um, I haven't been there in like a decade and a half, but I saw that they put railings. So you don't fall off, but like, I, I know there are adventurous types who like to go off the beaten path and I, I've know. got a, I've got a family friend who works for the administration at a grand Canyon university. So whenever his family or friends come down, of course, they always want to drive down to the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And it, it is different. I haven't been there in probably a de- two decades, probably. I was like probably under 10 when I went. Mm-hmm. But like I keep track of that stuff. And I remember like when I came back tr- to the United States from Australia, there were a large number of people that would go on the donkey rides, the burrow tours. Ooh. And you had a lot of people falling off. And the thing Ooh. is when you fall off like – you you have to you have to be like an expert in climbing out of bad situations and you also have to make sure you don't hit your head. Mm-hmm. Now what they do if you do that, you have to wear a helmet. They want you to wear protective gear. A lot of the trails that they used to do for decades are now closed off because they don't want you um at on certain, you know, edges of it. So the whole Grand Canyon experience seems to be changing all the time and it seems to be limiting more and more of what you can do. I don't think the fires had anything to do with it. I don't think the fires in Arizona ever got near that point. But I've always, I, I think it's been um, a mix of just a lot of the trails eroding and stuff like that, and just crazy situations. Like there was a guy. I think, I think I don't know if they shoot bison by helicopter anymore. I think it used to be something they do. But like some guy, I think fell out of a helicopter. That's crazy. Like that is is so weird. I remember when we went there the first time as a family. We had heard like a famous story of like a movie star actress who was doing a photo shoot mm-hmm. off the edge of the Grand Canyon and because of some wind gust. And I don't know if this is a total fabrication or what, but she basically was carried away and the wind gusts were just horrible and fell to her death because of just how powerful the winds were uh, for the photo shoot. I remember, I forget who it was. It wasn't like Natalie Wood or anyone like that, but it was some maybe model or or like some B-list actress. I don't remember who, but that is crazy. But I I don't know actually which park has the highest mortality rate. I I wouldn't be surprised if it is Grand Canyon because of just how treacherous some of it is. And I know there are some nearby like tribal lands, so it's very sacred and they don't want people going there. That's in Utah actually for um, Antelope Canyon, which is not really a national park, but it's a state park. Arizona tribal land, anywhere you go, that's, that's a designated uh, Indian nation. Mm -hmm. They want you to go. They have all the casinos. Oh, and they, they want you to, you have to pay separately. Yeah. To go to like um, Antelope Canyon is a really Instagrammable place from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And you can't really find a tour or pay through a tour service. Actually you can, but you have to go get native American permission to go to this Antelope Canyon. So people do, it's not through the state, but it's, it's privately, which is interesting. Uh, But back to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Maybe it is the highest mortality rate in terms of places. I remember when we went to walk down just to see a little bit, we didn't go too far. We didn't take a donkey ride because I think my parents, we were told that it was a little dangerous. The paths were narrow. There were like a lot of different pebbles and whatever, and maybe some rattlesnakes. So we just did like, I don't know if it was even a mile very carefully. Like we're mindful, not hiking intensively, but yeah, you did have to be a little careful. Maybe that was Bryce Canyon because Bryce Canyon in Utah looks a little like <laughs> Grand Canyon I, I mean, National the last Park. thing I want to do, like I've never been to like riding. I, I've never done horseback rides. I've never done donkey rides and stuff like that. Because, don't do it like, going down an incline. Do it on a level surface. And, and, and that's the thing about the, about the Grand Canyon. Like it is, it is something like I have a Picasso. 
It, it mm-hmm. makes I do not want to ride one of the most skittish animals known to man in a place where I would, myself would be afraid of walking because of something. Yeah, it's a bit scary. I wouldn't recommend it. I don't know many people who have. Um, I think you can view the Grand Canyon from the top sufficiently mm-hmm. and just go kind of at the overlook point. And they constructed some like observation deck there, right? I haven't been there since they did. They, they've wanted to basically expand the number of opportunities for people to get a better panoramic shot of it. I see. Which I, I think is good. Like, yeah. I, like you know, I, I don't want to screw around of safety, especially with all the things that, you know, pe- people hear every year about, you know, accidental deaths and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But but going back to what you said a moment ago about, uh, you know, find the most Instagrammable place, but even further <laughs> that, like why people from the coast don't seem to necessarily take advantage of all these places. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And um, what, what I will say to tie this in together is I follow all your social media and folks, I'm going to go ahead and post all Gabriella's social media in the comments. But what my favorite platform to look at your stuff is on Instagram because you're doing all the adventure traveling. And, and that's what got me thinking. It's like, I think, and maybe it's because I've lived in DC too long. There's a difference between traveling and vacationing. And when people think of traveling they think of vacationing because what they want to do is they want to go to a resort or a place where everyone has already gone a million times already they're going to spend a lot of money and they're not going to do anything that's even remotely a bit of a challenge i've always liked traveling because my thing is i want to see a lot of things i want to see a lot of things that not a lot of people see and it's not always going to be like the most desired way of doing so I'll sleep in my car. I'll drive four or five hours to a place. I'll go 30 miles off the highway. I'll, I'll hike to go see random stuff and things like that. And like with travel, it's more work. I I think that's one of the things, because when you look at people in like, you know, the the South and the Midwest, it's almost like they had to leave. And when they had to leave to go somewhere, it was a road trip. It was an RV trip. They were trying to save money on things, whereas people on the East and the West Coast, it was almost treated as more of a, you know, a, a common luxury. Therefore, they wanted to treat it as more of a relaxing experience, whereas for the rest of the flyover country, it was something where it's like you might as well make the most memories out of it as possible. Yeah, I would think there would be pockets of people on the coast who do like to do you described oh, they, i think they totally exist i'm talking about like yeah. your average person though yeah like my, it's... my guy friends here who i've been you know i've known my mm-hmm. like the, my core group of guy friends i've known since i was like 12 like i love them to death but i can't get them to do anything with me <laughs> and their idea is guys let's go down to miami i know a resort we'll go and uh, smoke cigars and we'll do this and i'm like i want to go see stuff man there are some draws to Miami. I would say that actually there are places right by the coast, yeah, but everyone just outside the city. Every, everyone, like here, everyone here goes to the OBX. Everyone here. Oh goes my gosh. Like, yeah. Everyone here goes to the same couple places in Mexico. Mm-hmm. People here go to the Poconos. It's like, why would I want to I, like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those places, but I'm seeing a pattern. Yeah. Cause like, they're just not creative. There. Yeah. I think I think people are just not creative. They don't want to take too many risks that are involved, I would say, with travel like you're alluding to. And I think you're even more rugged than me. I haven't gone camping in forever and I've largely stayed at like oh, nice I accommodations. Sl- I slept I slept in my car when I was <laughs> That's in very, I have never well, done that well, actually. The reason I didn't I didn't set out thinking I was going to do it. I went to go stay with a friend who lives in a remote cabin outside of Shelby, 
North Carolina, along the South Carolina border, on a place called the Fox River that actually mm. goes through Tennessee. And he had a futon. And he was going to let me sleep on the futon, except he said, you're going to have to share it with my four dogs. And I said, what if I just kick him off? And he said, no, that's not how it works. So I'm there for five nights, and I tried getting through it night one, and I almost suffocated to death. So the next day, I lost <laughs> sleeping bag, and I slept in my car. And I actually wow. found that sleeping in your car is not the worst thing if you're comfortable and you're warm. But like, it, it was one of those situations. Like For me, it was more like, I don't want to go spend money at a hotel. That's a good concern to have. I mean, actually, now that I think of it, I could probably camp out in my new Subaru Forester. I've had this car for about two that's, years. That's way more comfortable. You know what I had to do? I'm in my Kia Optima, in the <laughs> front seat, and I recline it all the way back. Oh, wow. So, oh, like, yeah, that's not comfortable. No, like it was it was better than the futon. And like, honestly, like having, having camped before, like, you know, and, and there's army camping where it's like you have a cot and a sleeping bag, and there's nothing around you. I would have at least killed for a tent. But it's like if I have to choose between like camping in a tent or sleeping in my car in some cases, I'd almost rather just sleep in my car. You're safer, especially if there are like predators lurking. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not that, I'm not that rugged. If I hear a wolf or something, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to think of ways to like sleep in my Subaru Forester because like I could pull down the middle row and then that's enough space for me to put a sleeping bag and actually be comfy if I'm worried about like, well, I want to save money. I'm at a camping site. Although, do, do you I know the rule about Walmart and Cracker Barrel? No, what are the rule what is the rule? You are allowed to sleep overnight in the parking lot of any Walmart or Cracker Barrel in America. Is that so? Is that you a hidden rule? Let, it's a hidden rule. You have to you have to speak with the manager, but both but both uh both Cracker Barrel and Walmart have a policy, especially for like RVers. Truckers too? Truckers too. Hmm. Well, I think for truckers it depends. Like it depends on how like a super Walmart versus a regular Walmart. Sure. But for, for like regular people, if you're passing through, as long as you let them know you're going to sleep there, they're okay with it. Because what they found is that you're more likely to go in and buy more things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that was a hidden rule because I, yeah, I was staying at his place for a little bit. And, and this was the first time I was like traveling farther but in a condensed period because I only had like uh, six days on my trip. So I wanted to basically circle around North Carolina. So like I stayed at, you know, a sleep in one night. But a couple nights I'm sleeping in my car, uh, I'm sleeping in his lot, or I'm sleeping one night I was in a I was in a I was in a rest stop, which I found out you can't sleep overnight in rest stops. You can't? Is, no, you can't, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> You're telling me I can sleep at a Walmart parking lot with people literally smoking crack, but I can't go to a rest stop where there's probably gonna be a state trooper nearby at least. It's weird yeah. things like that. But for me, it came more out of cheapness than mm. anything else. It's just one of those things where it's like if if I have to do that, that's almost part of the adventure. But that's travel. It's like, you know, that's there's only so much an urban Indiana Jones can actually be capable of sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, travel. I mean, I've been really fortunate. I mean, I don't mind rugging it out. I would love to. But I haven't had the opportunities to do it. And I think even among my group of friends, which I love, like I love my friends, but among them are very few really true grit outdoorsmen or women, not so much hunting or fishing, but even like campers. Like one of my friends, he loves camping and likes hiking. So I could probably go with him, but it's like it comes at a really inopportune time. 
I have some other conflict or I don't, I don't know, it's too far or something, something doesn't work out, but there is an interest and we have continual conversations about doing stuff. But anytime I've traveled kind of the road, less traveled, uh, let's say for example, last year I went to South Dakota, which isn't really hit up that much. Although more people are going there, they're going to Mount Rushmore. Although the recent fires there may be a deterrent, although I think it should be open up again, but I, I got to go to Mount Rushmore, the town of Custer, which is really cool. I got to spend a little time in Rapid City. So those are not really traversed super well, like, I don't know, a Yellowstone would be, or a Yosemite, or even like a Miami or whatever kind of tourist destination. So I got well, to for see like what you did, like your, your whole job is kind of dependent on you being able to go to these places to interview things. people with, or with, to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, with COVID and everything, how, how did that impact it? Interestingly enough, it didn't really impede my prog. Uh, it didn't really impede my possibility of travel. Although um, clients were like, eh, we have to kind of reduce your ability to travel for a bit for work. Um, and this was more so for the writing side of my business. I was able to travel um, not so much for, for business. Some of my clients, my one free market environmental client was really nervous about COVID rules. And I think a lot of people were, there was a lot of uncertainty about travel. So I couldn't film for my conservation nation series until recently again, when I was able to go to Okeechobee, Florida and spend about four or five days down there and really get as much content as I could. But I think everyone was having this uncertainty about travel, but for writing, it was like maybe into the second wave of the pandemic. And it was actually right around the time, right before South Dakota had its really bad outbreak. And for me, I suspect, I, I don't know. I haven't tested if I had antibodies or anything of that sort, but I felt like I had it maybe early on in February because one of my friends had lost his taste of smell and taste of senses uh, what was it? January, December, I think. And that uh, some people say COVID has been in the country since October, November of 2019. So I wonder if I had like a milder form of it in February of 2020. Um, I, I must've gotten it. So somehow somewhere, maybe a mild form or not. I think if it's, since it's highly contagious, all of us have had it in some form or fashion. I, I mean, let, let's think of like, what's more dangerous though. Like if you're outside and you're being active and you're in the sun and you're getting clean air and you're, I, I think, I think your mental health also contributes to how your yes. body reacts to things. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to be afraid of a virus like that, I think it's worth the chance versus yeah. being in the same condensed area because like, I've seen too much of my neighbors, like, you know, they're, they're nice people and all, but like, I've needed to get out of here because it's like one of these situations where it's like, we're all at home. We're all trying to stay as, as far away from each other as possible. You know, we're, we're almost more susceptible to it. And, that's what that's they said. Mm -hmm. I think there were reports. When was it? So Virginia, we had, what was it? The two and a half months of like lockdowns, essentially. It was what, from my birthday, the 16th until like Memorial Day, essentially almost two weeks. We, I was we going like stir the, crazy. We were like in the top five worst states in terms of the reaction. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as New York, New Jersey, California, or Florida, or some of the bigger states, but yeah. there was a lot of different mixed messaging, different things. I remember going to the grocery store, one of my first outings in COVID at the height of it here in Virginia, like people were in gloves and masks and gas masks and all these different like PPE and it felt really abnormal. But, you know, when I heard about this and, and when I went into thinking like, can I travel? Can I do this? Obviously I would stay state stateside. I didn't want to go internationally. Cause I'm like, eh, it's probably dangerous, 
But traveling stateside, you know, I wasn't that worried because they started to cleanse the planes better. Like the filtration system is a lot better. There are fewer germs now. Like they take really great attention to cleaning the aircraft, making sure you're safe to fly. Now I think obviously it's optional, but you can get a COVID test if you want, a rapid test right before you fly or they encourage you to do it. Oh, There's at, th- at certain airports, they're they're really crazy about that. Like when I went to Indiana for a They week, made you take a test? Well, when I came back, you had to you had to show a test. From where to which airport? Uh, BWI. Oh, see, that's different. Reagan, they so, haven't made you do that so yet. Like in in I think it was February, like right when I got back. I got back end of January. Uh, BWI made a policy that you need to show that you're basically COVID free. I might be wrong about that, but like the state of Maryland was really really yep. crazy about that. Whereas uh, you know I flew out of Dulles recently, and like you know it was it was empty. Like I've never, mm-hmm. I've never seen that airport so empty. And that's the other thing too. Like as, as I've gotten more into like road tripping and everything, the one thing that is kind of odd to me is that if you want to be alone in this country, or if you want to be far away from major populations and not see a person for maybe a couple hours, it's easier to do that than I ever thought. Yes. And with that comes a lot of freedom because apart from when I was like in, in North Carolina, for example, I hung around a, uh, Charlotte and Asheville for a little bit. Unless you're on like the major highways, you could t- you could set your GPS to take you through back roads and everything, and you can see a lot of stuff. But you'll also probably be alone at a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. And same went for Virginia during the summer of 2020. I went probably a full 24 hours without seeing another person at one point. Wow. And it wasn't because I was trying. It was just because a lot of these towns were just were just dying Desolate. out. And a lot of the places I was going to were not your typical tourist traps. It was a lot of like obscure roadside or off the beaten path Mm -hmm. locations. And it's like as I look around more, especially traveling to Indiana where it was like something out of a post-apocalyptic movie, um, like there, it's it's a big country. And I think we tend to get really – really confused with it through online and through media and everything else. It's a giant place and there's enough for people to do things and not have to be bothered or bother anybody else. Absolutely. And when I went to Wyoming in the black Hills region of that, so South Dakota where I was, was the black Hills region of that state and that borders Wyoming black Hills region. I was there maybe almost two months later and that was probably the most remote I've ever been in my life. I would say, actually, um, it was a really small town of Hewlett, Wyoming. There was no Walmart or major whoa, whoa, big whoa, box whoa, store whoa. for no, 50 no, miles. No Walmart for 50 miles. Yeah. Okay. I could never live there. It was beautiful to visit. There was like a country store. We had like little convenience stores. I had to get something for some slight medical emergency, nothing problematic, but thankfully the convenience store had it, but it was, and I was staying at like a golf club resort, which was super nice and wonderful. It, it was a beautiful property, but like modern conveniences, apart from, let's say, individual homes or little country stores, like it's really scary for all of us who've been so used to having big box stores or all these different grocery stores around. So for me, I was like, wow, there were not many people there. Of course, this was after um, what's the big biker rally in South Dakota. My gosh, why is it slipping from me? Uh, so it's after it's not, that event. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Sturgis, but yes, it is Sturgis. Sturgis, is, Sturgis is in the area. So people oh. from who go to Sturgis go to this town too sometimes. So it was past that time at Sturgis, and it was November right after the election, and it gets colder. There was a forecast of snow, 
And that was probably one of the few times, like I took the open road. I drove from, I drove with a friend from Denver, Colorado, which I saw a lot of cars, of course, not surprisingly, because I flew into the airport there. But as I was going north to Cheyenne, it became more sparse and you saw little people here and there at restaurants because Wyoming at the time didn't really have mask mandates or really clamped down on COVID stuff, but they had an outbreak shortly afterwards and things of that sort. So as I started to go north, north, north and more east, we saw fewer people, fewer houses. And it was like, wow, this is so remote. Like, I think this is even more remote than some places I've been to in California or even Virginia. And it really put things into perspective. Like I could be gone for a few days. Like I won't see people. I won't hear from people. It was kind of nice to be in a low reception area. Like when I went to this hunt camp, uh, it was really bad signal there. You didn't really have much of internet, which was nice. Maybe on purpose they did it because they wanted you to have fun and enjoy the other people's company. And I did, I did my best to enjoy what was around me. And I think only in the evenings and maybe in the mornings just to check up on my family, tell them I'm okay and safe. And like, if I wanted to post anything interesting, like I would do it in the evenings, but it was kind of nice just to be like in a low reception zone, kind of sparsely populated. Like I saw beautiful constellations way, way, way up in the sky, like big dipper and other things. It was low noise pollution and light pollution, not noise, well, noise pollution, but mostly no light pollution either, which was phenomenal. And it, it was just so, how would you say, like kind of just relaxing and a nice change from what I'm used to, like airplanes overhead or too many people. And I think visiting these different portions of these really cool states is really a great way to put your kind of existence into perspective. Like you're just one person. This country is so vast. Like you said, you can get lost. You can not hear from people for hours or even a day if you really are in a place of that. And you just kind of get to see a different world around you. Like in Wyoming, I got to see that kind of like old west turn feel kind of like from the early days and then i also drove through on my way back i went through oil and gas country an area that's going to be really hard hit with some of the new policies that we are experiencing and seeing and it just it, it, it's, it's so funny too since like all the people the new administration is claiming to be like the champion of especially in like the sioux indian nation stuff mm-hmm. like that like they're the ones saying no we kind of want the pipeline Oh yeah, Dakota, they're allowing that actually on a side. I'm surprised they haven't stopped that one yet. Uh, But in Wyoming, so like you get to see all these different industries, like everyone talks about American workers and this, that. And it's like, I've been to these places where workers are like true blue workers and you get to see a different side to it. It's very differently oriented. Like you won't see, you'll see big box stores, of course, because that's what's necessary for people to live there, but there are no fancy houses. It's kind of simple, like simplistic housing and accommodations. You see like truck stops, you see different like fast food joints. So it's very different even in Wyoming, which is a pretty affluent state. When you come to think of it, like Jackson hole is like where the ultra rich live and you have ranchers and cattlemen and all that. And like, Hewlett, Wyoming is pretty well to do, but you know, not as wealthy as like the Western portion of the state. And then like central portion of the state is where all the people who work to power 50% of the state's economy, that's where they work. And you just see all these different pieces on the landscape and just how different it is. And you get to appreciate it because like all these people who live in flyover or kind of these states away from the coast, they do so much for all of us to be spoiled and to be bradish um, with all the different electricity sources. We have the conveniences of food and produce and things of that sort. So I've kind of made it like 
a mission, you know, for myself as a business person and through reporting trips, I do to kind of go to the places that people don't go to. Um, and I get to experience places. Like I was able to fit in time at the beach in Jupiter, Florida. Like I was in Orlando, so it wasn't completely like away from civilization, but I was largely tucked away from civilization in an area like called between the beaches, between the Atlantic and the Gulf coast of Florida. And it was just so nice to be there. Like it was maybe five miles tucked away from any type of civilization, but you felt like you were in a whole different place. You just had a highway and just the stars to look up to cows mooing. And it was so nice. And to be, I mean, the stories that I kind of look out for, like they're in these places, like the middle of somewhere as Selena Zito calls them and her co-author for their book. And I think that's what people forget. They forget that there are some places in the middle of so-called nowhere. I bet in your travels, you've been able to see that too, that there's just so much kind of untapped beauty in different places that people don't frequent. Instagram influencers don't go to. And I like going to places that influencers go to too, but like, I don't always try to get like the characteristic shot. Like I love going to any Miami or Fort Lauderdale beach as much as the next person but like sometimes like if I go to a common place, I'm like, oh, I'm just like relaxing. I don't want to like take any photos or like maybe I'll take something that's unique. But, but like, yeah, go ahead. But I think um, when you go to these really traversed places, you always can find different places to do too. But I, I like exploring unknowns as well. Um, I think that's really important to do. And I've had the luxury of doing it through reporting trips or even client trips too. But, well, my, well, probably my favorite movie is the secret life of Walter Mitty with, uh, ben Stiller and Sean Penn, and they're like, there's this part towards the end of the film where uh, you know Walter has found Sean Penn's character, uh, Sean O'Connell, who's like this big adventure photographer. And what he's done is he's in like the Himalayas, and he's like hiding underneath a white blanket to blend in with the snow because he wants to take a photo of the snow leopard. And as uh, ben, uh, ben Stiller's character comes around. Uh, Sean Penn grabs him. He's like, look right there. And they see the tiger. And Sean Penn creeps from around the camera and he just stares at it. And, you know, Stiller looks at him. He's like, well, when are you going to take the shot? And he's like, you know, sometimes I don't. Sometimes if I really like something, like me personally, I, I don't like the lens to get between me and the moment. And that is that that's like one of those few lines in the movie where it's like, wow, that has like deep, like prolific philosophical backing behind it, because I like to I, I like to share where I go and things like that. But there are a lot of like moments or there are a lot of things that I've seen. And the best thing to do is just to be there. Because, yeah, it's one thing to focus on the right angles and how am I going to get the shot and should I be in it, should I not be in it, that type of thing. But the moments where it's like, you know what, this is a me moment, those are the ones where it's like even though a picture would have been nice or something, I didn't want anything to take me out of it. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people now, and I think this is the benefit, if there is any silver lining to the events of the past year, it's that as we disconnect from the TV, as we disconnect from the Internet and things like that, and we just try and take these moments to get out in the world, we're starting to realize that. And th and that's the thing about this country, you know, not, not to get too political, but as people are like, oh, I think we're going to need to, like, you know, divide and separate and stuff like that. Like, there could be an argument made for it, but, like, there's a – it's a – big, big country. And there's enough space for all of us to live our lives and to be happy and to do what we feel we need to do. And I think through your travels, you'll discover that actually there are fewer differences and more commonalities between people. I've noticed in my travel, like 
Anytime I've gone anywhere, even when I used to be employed by Leadership Institute, I would go to different places, meet some interesting people. And I would always try to ignore what was said on media. Like I would never say like, you know, you go to the South, everyone is racist. I think in California, we were always taught like the South is so racist. And certainly there were racist elements here. <laughs> Definitely as recent as the 1980s. Oh, I, as we know. I, I, I love the South. And if I had gone there, if I had never lived there, and I think going there and living there are sometimes a bit of a different experience mm-hmm. whole thing, but like living in Alabama, um, you know, like that taught me a lot about the South in a way that, you know, I would have never gotten it from living up here because Virginia, especially Northern Virginia, it does not feel culturally Southern. No, so it's one of those situations. I, even in Lynchburg, it didn't, when I was living in Lynchburg, it didn't feel very Southern. It was more Southern than Northern Virginia, but like this, you know, this classic Southern state is, is different from the rest of the South in that sense. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those situations where it's like, I, I had to see it for myself to get to my own opinion. Yeah. And when I moved out here, I was able to gauge that myself. And I mean, I was cognizant of the history and, you know, you sometimes find that here, but interestingly enough, I feel like people get better along or they, they get along better, excuse me, in the South, like Charleston, South Carolina, like after that horrific shooting there, one of the friendliest places on it is. And people are like, it's harmonious of all different backgrounds. People get along really, really well. And even after that horrific Charleston shooting, I remember like those congregants were just, you know, that evil kid like came to their church and, and shot and killed people. Yet they were like, no, we can forgive him. I'm like, if I were in their position, I don't know if I could forgive that racist from shooting their members. So I was like, it's, and they didn't have burning down of anything. And it was really different than, I think it was the time of like the Freddie Gray, uh, Baltimore event upheaval and and Michael Brown. 2014. Yeah. So around that time, you saw how people in the South responded a little differently than they did in Missouri and in Baltimore. And I was like, okay, maybe the South is not as divided and hateful as it used to be. I mean, why are people moving to the South from the Northeast if it's so bad, so racist, so unwelcoming? And it, it, and it, it, it really comes with kind of an actualization of reality, seeing that, you know, all these stereotypes placed on different places may not be true if you visit there. And certainly there'll be pockets of it everywhere. And I think even what I'd heard from someone in the North about the Northeast, sometimes like someone told me Boston can be actually a pretty racist city. I was like, what? Like the North, like, no way. Like we're always told like the Northern States are always so friendly. They're like, no, no, even Boston angry. Yeah. They're angry. They can be angry. Libertarians have like this fetish for talking about like the New Hampshire, New Hampshire. And it's like, I've been to New Hampshire and like, listen, I hate New Hampshire. Uh-oh. I don't like there's nothing I like about it. I don't like anything about it. And I've lived in some pretty bad places and I don't I don't get it at all. So it's like one of those situations where it's like, listen man, like you you're not going you're not going to change my mind on some things. I wouldn't live in New Hampshire, but I do like some of its nature and there are actually some great people there. I think also you may listen to what is what are those the free staters? I think that's a uh, people, need, people need to ignore them. It's not <laughs> I, they're not representative was, of New Hampshire's <laughs> residents. I was I was speaking to a guy when I was with uh, Young Americans for Liberty. He worked for Gun Owners of America, and I had worked for Gun Owners of America before that. And I was talking about some things, and he's like, "So you want those libertarian guys?" And I'm like, "Well, oh yeah. I mean, but why do you say it so negatively?" He's like, "The Free Staters, man. They they ruined this place. They brought more tyranny with them than I've ever seen in my life. I lived here for thirty years." And I'm like, "What wow. are you talking about?" He's like, "We didn't have zoning laws before them." 
Now we have zoning laws. We used to be able to open carry more freely. Now we can't open carry. And he's like, all they all, they all came here and they all started just getting in people's faces when everyone just moved here for the first place to be left alone. And it's kind of funny. It's like the people telling you that you should be left alone are the people like who are actively trying to find you to bug you about Ugh. that stuff. I've completely I've lost all interest in that thing. Yeah, but I think New Hampshire is even beyond free staters. Because you go there, there's what the White Mountains, which are actually pretty treacherous to hike. And I've read some stories of like hikers dying. Um, so it's pretty intense, but the nature there is really beautiful. It's certainly remote. I've been, I mean, probably the extent of my travel there was I went to Manchester, which was kind of cool. It's interesting, you know, neat little town, not really like traveled much by tourists, but it's still really cool. And there are some little great pockets of New Hampshire, in my opinion. Like I really liked going there. I never really went to Vermont. I went to Vermont once and I was kind of bored by it. I was like, okay, I see like something that looks out of the Shire. There was like a cool windmill <laughs> and, and mill and like running around and there was like all the foliage change. But like, I only went to Vermont once. I didn't really see much of a draw there. It was too far from everything and there was no student interest to do things there. But I used to love going to Boston. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, but yeah, New Hampshire is, it's not for the faint of heart. They do have harsh winters. Um, Although, yeah, they have great seafood, too, on the coast. I didn't get to go to the coastal region. I just drove through it when I went it's, to Portland, it's Maine. One of the, it's one of those states where it's like everything is an extreme version of the weather. That and, you know, it's it's a developed state, but it's still like I, I forgot where I was, but I still saw Internet cafes. Um, like, Concord, gosh, Hanover. Hanover. It was Hanover, Hanover. the college town. Okay. Yeah. Hanover still had internet cafes and it's, wow. like, it was 2018. So I'm thinking <laughs> this is 2018. Who has the need for an internet cafe? But, but it's things like that where it's like, you know, if you want to go there and do that, that that's your own thing. But like it's, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of space and there's a lot of opportunity. And I, I even think there's a, you know, I, I'll, I won't say like you know, I'll say maybe there's like a spiritual side of it, a metaphysical side, but like man needs to step out into nature. Yes. At least to reconnect with, with where he or she is in the world. Because when we disconnect ourselves from that, we begin to become very narrowly focused on things that don't matter in the long term in our lives. And I think that is the worst thing about politics that's the worst thing about a lot of things mm -hmm. we begin to care about things with maximum effort now that won't matter five months from now absolutely yeah i think just a lack of prioritization of issues and so many people like i think for much of this weekend i was away from things i was largely in shenandoah county i think where was it saturday so i went fishing in the national forest and i had prepped everything. I had all my equipment, but there was no fish at the spot, although it was stocked a week beforehand, but it was good. I got to get in my casting. I got to wade in the river. Beautiful. The water was perfect temperature. I saw the Eastern road, rosebuds um, in bloom. It was great nature. And then my dad and I moved to a different area. We drove through Strasburg, which is a really interesting little town. Very kind of like different from anywhere you go. Even Winchester, it's very it's contrast. Re it's really tucked in the middle of nowhere. Yes. You almost feel like you're in a, you've been teleported to a different state. 
Yeah. In between Warren and Shenandoah County. So we went through there to go to this, we've been to this trout pond before trout farm. And some people are like, Oh my God, fishing from a trout pond. Oh, that's not real fishing. But I'm like, I was fly fishing and it's very different. And not everyone catches a fish from a pond or a farm. So it takes skill and you have to have the right equipment to do it. But we went to this place, uh, a famous like trout farm and had a lot of fun. And then yesterday I went just outside Shenandoah national park to someone we met their place. Uh, we met from the fishing farm the day before and we got to like hike around the area. We were looking for morel mushrooms and we didn't have success. I think we were like a week or two early, but we went to the right spots where they would normally be. And I learned a lot about poplar trees, which is where these mushrooms grow on. Uh, we were told about like different bear tracks or deer tracks. I got to try my fishing at this like interesting waterway. I don't know what stream this was, but like I saw a little trout, like really little fingerling trout, like in this natural stream, kind of unadultered, untouched thing. And it was so beautiful. And I didn't look at my phone and that was so nice and relaxing. Like even going to these kind of like off the beaten path areas, uh, kind of to areas where I've been to before, even beyond the national park. So you can really learn about different things. Like even in your backyard, like this is maybe less than two hours away from my house and I just felt like I was transported in a different world. I learned about different cultural things, different customs, kind of the things that go on. I didn't know that the area behind Shenandoah National Park is unfortunately an area with a lot of meth, meth problems. Oh, and they, they call it the, um, the meth runner capital of America. Yeah. Because what you have is you have a lot of people coming up through that. Uh, I think it's the I-65 corridor or something. And it, there's a lot of meth down there. I was, I was speaking with one of the city councilmen from Culpeper. Virginia. And he was like, listen, man, we don't have much here, but we've got guns, freedom and meth. And you decide which is the good stuff and the bad stuff. So take it or leave it. And I'm like, what? But that's that's a whole other thing. But like, you know, I I I say this story and it kind of, you know, it kind of reminds me as to how we we can change our scope in terms of what what we really see around us. And it can either be big or small. But like I, I live uh, two miles away from the Occoquan hiking trail. Like it's up the road from me and it's one of the most beautiful trails in all of Virginia. It cuts between Manassas and Clifton and mm-hmm. nobody would know that you can get completely lost there. And I have friends who are like, man, you know, I want to go hiking, but I don't know where to go. And it's like, are you serious? You live in Centerville. You can go to Occoquan. You can go to uh, the, fa- the, the, the head of, Al- of the Occoquan trail in Fountainhead. You can go to Bull Run. Like there's a lot of places around yes. you. You just have to look first. And once you do, it's, it's a whole powder keg of opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah. You could get lost anywhere. Like some places you feel like, Oh my gosh, am I really like this close to one town or so you like I'm transported into this like whole new world. And the old adage is true. Nature is healing. I feel like anytime I'm out in the woods, sometimes you get like, if you spend too much time, I don't think there's any problem with spending too much time outdoors, but you can get really tired and sometimes sleepy from having so much fresh air. And I think that's a good thing. Like you want to naturally get tired from spending time outdoors. I think that's better than like exhausting yourself doing stupid laborious activities or twiddling on your computer or something. And just that fresh air is so good for your mind, not worrying about what's happening on Twitter. Like I try not to pay like, even largely today while we're recording, I haven't really been on my phone that much just to briefly look at things like to answer some emails, but like I've largely been off social media today, recording interviews, doing things like staying busy 
And I'm like, I feel a little better not looking at the the different battles waging on Twitter or other social media outlets. And I was, I feel like for the last few weeks, I've been largely too much on social media. And I'm like, I need to scale back. And going out to nature actually brought me back down to that area I need to be where I'm not always on my phone so much like and I can look at my phone maybe a little bit in the evening when people are on it more and can pay attention to content like I'm going to try to make a rule where maybe I'll only post at like times when people are on or be on more actively in the evening for a few hours at most but I think um, going to nature really does make you it does make you a better person like it, it it like I love it and I can't recommend it enough. And I know that's, I'm not waxing poetic as I should be <laughs> me being the writer, but sometimes I'm just like, it's better left to keep things simple because like I could try to John Muir be like John Muir or Teddy Roosevelt or some other philosopher about the great outdoors. And I feel like that would be lost on people. And I think people want to know that going somewhere is accessible. You don't really have to think so hard when you have to go outdoors, but you can ponder and self-reflect. And if you are religious, you could be closer to God outdoors too. I think there's a great kind of connection between nature and the the man upstairs. If you are into, into that, like you really can know your place on earth um, and be contemplative and, and reflective and, and really achieve what you're looking for. If you're trying to seek that inner peace and yeah, too many people, they just like to not do that. I mean, not everyone's going to like the outdoors. They're not going to like fishing. They're not going to like hunting or hiking or biking or boating or whatever. But I think this year alone, since we last spoke on your podcast, like we've seen so many people, just the greater proliferation of people hiking, fishing, biking. We've seen people run out of different boats and canoes and kayaks. Like some, many people have complained about shortages of different items, obviously guns and ammunition shortages. There's not really a shortage of fishing poles. (laughs) (laughs) Fishing poles. I mean, my dad went to Walmart. What was it like at the early onset of the pandemic said like the whole fishing aisle was cleared out. I bet other different stores had about Cabela's. I went to recently, they had all their fishing supplies stocked. So no problem there. Probably they replenished it too. They replenish it often, but it's like when you see a shortage of fishing poles, that's a good sign. Or if you see a shortage of firearms, that's a great sign. We want people to be buying and we want people to be going outdoors and people are buying like camping tents too in great, great numbers. So it's a good problem to have. I think more people should be doing it. There's plenty of space for people to go outdoors, to be unperturbed. And you don't have to worry about what people say. You don't have to worry about people's opinions. And you're going to feel less stressed when you do that. And you can find something as simple as hiking a Civil War trail or Revolutionary Trail or going to Harper's Ferry. I took my mom to Harper's Ferry for the first time recently, and she loved it. She had never gone. And you can see the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers. You can learn about the different history that happened there. John Brown's Rebellion. You can learn about all the different buildings that were there, the railroad system. There are near breweries nearby, like all these different places. And it's only an hour and 45 minutes from DC proper or Alexandria proper. And you just have so much fun. And it was actually quite crowded in Harper's Ferry. And you have sea signs all over the place, encouraging you to wear masks when you're not within six feet of separation from people. But like, even though tourists are going there, like it's still a great place and you can still have enough space away from people, the crowds. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gabrielle, we got to wrap up before we do. You mentioned your, uh, your series is back on now. Conservation, Conservation Nation. Nation. You want to tell us a little bit about that before you go? Yes, absolutely. And maybe we can revisit again to talk about freelancing. I think that'd be fun to do oh, in the definitely. future. But that's, I was, that's a whole other thing, right? Yes. There. Yes. And I definitely want to help you deconstruct that too. But I've had this series for about a year, two years. 
actually, I think two years now, but we've had to separate episodes. We've had long gaps because of COVID. But I just released an episode about how cows keep Florida green. We went to the Okeechobee region of Florida, just on the headwaters of Lake Okeechobee. And I interviewed a handful of individuals. I released many of my conversations on my podcast, District of Conservation, which is kind of like a supplement to it. But I was able to focus largely in this episode, episode four of these two Florida ranchers, one of which I stayed on his ranch and I got to experience it for the first hand. So I had that like glamping experience, but it was still kind of rugged, which was a lot of fun. And he showed us around his different properties. We got to see all these really cool cows. Um, There's like a hybrid Brangus. It's called a Brangus cow. So it's a hybrid of a Brahmin cow from India and an Angus cow. Really interesting mix there. Oh, and like we saw large. Yeah, they're huge. And they're really cute. The calves are super cute. And some of them have like solidly like brown patterns and then like just a white face or like solid black color or tan color or something of that nature. And just really interesting livestock that he had there. And we saw lots of different like endangered birds. I saw so many crocodiles. Like I got so sick of seeing crocodiles, <laughs> but they were really cool. And we just learned about the ranching history. And um, these are two cousins, these two ranchers. And one of them was like a cowboy poet. He makes his own like hot sauce and salsa from pineapple and all these different fruits. It's amazing sauce. I told him, I said, you need to bring your sauces and uh, different salsas. Like you need to market it up here in Northern Virginia <laughs> to do that. And um, so you just meet these interesting people and they're maligned unfairly and they play a great role in conservation. They're super talented. They're lawyers, they're businessmen. And they're never really given a fair shake in the media. So I found it upon myself to tell their story. We've gotten a lot of traction on the YouTube video, on the teaser clips I've provided. Uh, it's gotten a lot of feedback um, on my Instagram posting of one of the videos. I think it got like close to 6,000 views of the actual video. So that was really cool. On YouTube, we're starting to pick up because my clients are going to do the promotion of it. So we've got close to 300 views there, but I have no doubt it's going to get more um, as it starts to, to percolate on YouTube. But so far, social media reaction has been really great. Uh, the participants were really happy. It's a really great story to chronicle. Florida has 500 years of this rich ranching history that people don't know. This, So I like to insert really fun tidbits about different conservation stories that kind of relate to people and trace it back to industries that we rely upon. We depend a lot on cattle ranchers for beef and for tilling to the land and water quality. And, and these ranchers play a huge role in the Everglades and keeping that system alive and well. And they help a lot with species conservation. They deal with conservation easements and they play a great role. And so when you hear people say, well, cows are the largest contributors to carbon emissions and these ranchers are just defilers of the land. I'm like, eh, hold on a second. <laughs> let's, let's do, let's do a counter report to see if this is really true. So C-Fact has been really great with sponsoring this, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And I don't really talk about climate issues so much like my colleagues do, but I try to focus on positive stories or stories that don't get a fair shake and try to offer some positivity and give people hope about like there is hope for conservation. You don't have to listen to these really rabid, angry environmentalists who say you have to abandon capitalism to achieve conservation, which is patently false. You don't need to. So it's a great series. I recommend you all to check it out who are listening to Remzo's podcast. You can connect with me on social media and we're going to have more episodes. I actually filmed a second one about this technology, which is going to help clean up noxious plants and weeds and help with water quality issues. And they're using the innovation of free markets and public private partnerships to achieve this. So we have a second video from Florida also coming out and I may be filming some upcoming ones from California, or if it's not safe to travel to California, I'm a little nervous about traveling there. 
I may do some other places filming in May, but we have lots of great content coming. And if you go to CFAX YouTube, it's uh, youtube.com slash user slash CFAX. You'll be able to find the series there. We have three other episodes as well. And it's, it's going to, we're going to be able to do a lot more now. I think as the pandemic starts to wane and people start to lift restrictions, I think there's going to be more episodes coming. So that's kind of the gist of it. Awesome. Well, I'm, folks, I'm going to make it easy for you. Everything that Gabriella just mentioned, I'm going to go ahead and include in the show notes. So that way you can go ahead and check out everything after the show. Gabriella Hoffman, always a blast having you on. We'll have to have you on again in the future, talk about all the other stuff we were talking offline that we didn't get a chance to today. Yes. I mean, that, that's a whole other episode in itself. Yes. Thank you, Remzo. You are wonderful. I've been enjoying the podcast very much and I'm grateful for our friendship. And anytime I can come onto your podcast and share my thoughts about nature and the great outdoors. Appreciate it. And likewise, very much. All right, folks, it costs you nothing, but it means everything to me, a five-star rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Let's people know the fun you're having, why they should go ahead and listen. That keeps these conversations going. If you love conversations with folks like Gabrielle and many of the other fantastic guests, uh, all the random topics I go ahead and bring in, bring a little bit of levity and clarity to your day, please go ahead and do that. And please subscribe to the newsletter, whitelist it, remso at substack.com. It's rem, it's remso.substack.com, remso at.substack.com. Um, whitelist my email so it doesn't get lost in your spam remso at substack.com as always we'll be back later on this week be good be safe and i'll talk to you later you're listening to the we are libertarians podcast network Find all of our shows at WeAreLibertarians.com, like The Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart-Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 